This is special programming from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. It's been 25 weeks since the campfire started. Tonight on After Paradise, we get our regular update from Butte County, the town of Paradise, FEMA, and Cal OES. We go to Paradise and hear from residents who celebrated Gold Nugget Days over the weekend. The annual tradition was held Saturday for the first time since the campfire. We also answer many of your questions, including those about Phase 2 debris removal, how FEMA makes decisions about who gets housing, and about why so many trees are being cut down. If you have a question about post-campfire recovery, you can ask it at mynspr.org. For Thursday, May 2nd, 2019, this is After Paradise. We start with our recurring update from government officials, who also answer your questions about debris removal, rebuilding, and housing. Earlier this morning, NSPR's Mark Albert spoke with Rebecca Kelly of FEMA, Justin Jacobs of Cal OES, Casey Hatcher of Butte County, and Colette Curtis from the town of Paradise to get the latest. Colette, what's the latest uh, from the town's perspective? Hi, Mark. Um, Sure, there's a lot going on with the town, of course. I wanted to touch on an event that we're having this Saturday, May 4th at 11 a.m. at Town Hall. The Daughters of the American Revolution um, had a flag flown over the U.S. Capitol, and they are presenting it to us as a symbol of solidarity um, after the campfire. Um, It's, you know, uh, survivors of Katrina wanted to reach out and um, give us this um, meaningful donation, and we are excited to receive it. And the public is welcome to come and be part of that presentation again at 11 a.m., on um, May 4th. So we're really excited about that and um, looking forward to having that happen here in our town. Also wanted to touch on a few other items that are coming up for us. We're having another meeting for our visioning planning coming up on May 22nd. That is where our final thoughts from our planning consultant will be presented and also some recommendations for our um, building codes. So we're looking at our building codes, especially for safety as we are rebuilding, and we're going to have some recommendations from UDA, um, and our council will be looking at those and considering them, although no decisions will be made at that May 22nd meeting. Um, We're just going to be listening to those and and gathering community input at that meeting as well. Well, it's still three weeks away, but uh, what is the time and place? Uh, Sure. It's at Paradise Alliance Church, which is 6491 Clark Road the same place we've had all of our planning meetings, and it's at 6 p.m. Terrific. Casey Hatcher, uh, Butte County. I'm sure there's a lot going on or some uh, new news to report. The county continues to focus on rebuilding, and uh, we've received 44 permits to rebuild homes. Um, We remind people that their lots have to be certified clean of all the fire debris before those permits can be issued, and as of today, 485 lots have been certified clean, about half of those in the state program and half of those in the alternative program. So that progress is, we're really excited to see that. Also on the line with us is Justin Jacobs of Cal OES. Uh, As the weather changes, I imagine that the uh, issues with debris removal and other things with the cleanup are also changing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As was mentioned, uh, more than 200 properties have been returned back to the county and certified clean. More than 1,800 properties have been cleared of hazardous materials or fire-related debris and ash. So the nuance or difference there is the fact that 
you know, once it's cleared of that debris and ash, soil samples have to be taken and certified, given back, and the parcel certified clean, and then it goes back to the county. So that could be um, a little bit of confusion, but at the same time, that's the difference in the, the variance in those numbers. Finally, Rebecca Kelly from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. I understand that the famed manufactured housing units, some of them are already in place and we're getting close to having them occupied and welcoming fire evacuees to new interim housing. That is right, Mark. We have an anticipated move-in date for the first of the four temporary housing communities for no further delays. Uh, to open at Rosewood Estates very soon. We are in the construction and inspection phase currently, and we have already identified those individuals who will be uh, primarily housing in those units at Rosewood Estates. Individuals who have already registered with FEMA and have met the general conditions to be eligible to receive housing assistance um, will be placed in those units. And the FEMA housing assistance for the temporary group sites will be for provided for up to 18 months, beginning on the date of the initial presidential major declaration date, which was November 12th. So the 18 months would end approximately May 12th of 2020. Um, so essentially the clock, uh, the communities will be open for, for 18 months, except that the clock started ticking uh, and there's only 12 months left. Yes, that's correct. Hi, Mark. This is Casey, and I just want to point out that the town and the county fully anticipate requesting those additional extensions as we uh, recover from this. And um, so many homes, um, you know, more than 14,000 homes burned, we fully anticipate needing temporary housing um, beyond that initial 18 months. So we could see those temporary housing units through May of 2021. We will um, certainly be looking at that request at the local level. Moving forward, let's. Uh, I'm going to move on to some listener questions. Uh, looking at debris removal during cleanup phase one, there was a progress map. Is there going to be a progress map for f- the phase two cleanup? And where can people find that information about how the process is going? Uh, there actually is a status update and progress map. Um, we have a, a website. It's a rather lengthy address, but I'd be happy to share it with you. It will take you to an active map that basically is color-coordinated to kind of show people where parcels are. Now, now that's kind of a snapshot in time. Those numbers are updated continuously, so it may not be, uh, you know, accurate to the second, but we try to keep those updated as as quickly and as regularly as possible. Uh, But that is out there and available, and again, I'll share the the website um, with with you guys, Mark, at the radio station, so you can make that available to listeners. Another question, how long does the soil sampling typically take after a lot's been cleared to get the results? We have a listener who says that a soil sample was taken on their property, but they haven't heard anything yet. Yeah, also another great question. You know, that kind of depends on the situation. So uh, I don't have an exact definitive answer, but at the end of the day, most of those in the general rule take about 15 days from the time they're taken to get the results back and then turn those results over and the parcel certified clean back to the county. But again, depending on when that sample was taken, um, for example, if it was taken during very wet weather or the times where we had the um, stand down due to weather, then it could have taken longer because we have to wait for that sample to dry out before those the sample can be tested. Is it the same for the state program as for the alternative program, or because one's using private contractors, the timeline might be different? Uh, This is Casey from the county. Um, 
the alternative program uh, cleanup requirements are the, the same as the state. They mirror the Cal Recycle cleanup program. So they do have to do the soil sampling. Um, they tend to use the same labs. So the turnaround time can be similar. Thank you so much, Casey. Would either of you know uh, how homeowners will be notified, how they'll know when their lot has been completed by the Cal OAS cleanup? They're actually going to be notified by the county once that property is um, turned back to the county from the state, it gets signed off as certified clean by environmental health. And if they're in the government program, they will receive a letter from the county at the address they provided on their right of entry form. If they're in the alternative program, they will receive an email at the email address they provided on their alternative program application. Uh, in addition, the county notifies the town for any properties in the town and then, of course, notifies the county building department so they can remove the restriction on issuing permits. Once the property is certified clean, then the local jurisdiction can issue permits on the site, whether that's a temporary permit to have temporary housing unit, maybe power or something like that back on the property, or a permit for rebuilding. Uh, these are some questions from listeners have for our FEMA officials. Uh, how does FEMA determine who gets a trailer? Do families have priority over the elderly? FEMA gives preference to survivors who have no other housing resources available. Travel tail trailers and mobile housing units are provided to households based on their medical needs, employment needs, transportation needs. Talk to your case manager. Explain your special circumstances. Let them know they already do know, of course, the size of your household. So they can place you in the correct kind of housing, depending on how you answered the questions during your initial interview. Rebecca Kelly of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Justin Jacobs of Cal OES, the Governor's Office of Emergency Services, Casey Hatcher of Butte County, and Colette Curtis of the Town of Paradise. Thank you all so much for your time, information, and help today. Thanks for having us, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you, Mark. Have a good day. This call is a recurring segment on our program. If you have questions for FEMA, Cal OES, Butte County, or the Town of Paradise, or you want to view the Phase 2 debris removal map, head to mynspr.org. Almost six months since the campfire struck, officials in Butte County say that some students are experiencing the same mental health issues they had right after the fire, and they need more counselors to support them. We turn to KQED's Michelle Wiley for the story. Pamela Beeman had been retired for five years when she got the call from Butte County. My husband is my witness. When I got the phone call, I said, oh, no, I really, I really don't want to go back to work. And they said, no, we really need you, and we need more people. So you just, you just can't say no to that. Since then, she's been working at an elementary school in Concow as a fire recovery counselor. Beeman says that right now, a lot of kids are still living with uncertainty. They're misplaced, they're doubled up in lodgings, and they're unsure where they're going to be. They keep thinking they've got a place and then it falls through. And it's not just housing uncertainty that they're struggling with. For a lot of people who witness the devastation of the campfire, the trauma they experienced just after the incident is coming up again, especially for kids. Here's Director of Student Services for Butte County Schools, Dina Capsalis. We're seeing lots and lots of manifestations of, of the trauma, a lot of acting out, sleepless, uh, you know, tiredness, inability to focus, um, shutting down, um, 
being unable to maintain relationships um, with adults or peers. Capsala says counselors try to view these manifestations of trauma as forms of communication. The gift of, of being with kids is that they don't second-guess themselves, typically. <laughs> so we're afforded the ability to to have more transparent, you know, responses and communication from them. That transparency can be a real asset for staff that are trying to help them address their trauma. But while kids may show their symptoms more obviously, seeing those signs in their teachers can be even more difficult. With adults, it's much harder, right, because they have all kinds of systems of coping that, um, that, often disguise what's really going on with them. Capsalis says that while school counselors wouldn't normally serve teachers as well as students, in this case, they're making an exception. Counselors have started posting up in staff rooms and hallways so they can encourage teachers to talk about what they're experiencing and connect them with services. But despite a need for support across the board, officials say they're still struggling to get enough school counselors to meet their needs. Roy Applegate helps lead the trauma response team in Butte County Schools. We have six schools that have requested and we can't bring help to them. So it's a, little, it's a little bit like rain in the desert in the summer. It just, as soon as it hits the ground, it disappears. So far, they have 23 people they've hired with schedules ranging from a few hours to full time. But as trauma symptoms get worse and the next fire season gets closer, the need for more staff is rising. We've heard about this wave of repeat of symptoms uh, that people have reported. Mm-hmm. You know. And we were warned about that by the trauma experts. This is the way it would happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there would be an immediate need and then a drop and then another wave. So we're hitting one of those waves right now. Right. So that pushes the demand for the, the counseling services. And not just that, just all the supports up. As for counselor Pamela Beeman, she's committed to working at the school through the spring term but doesn't know if she can continue on after that. Beeman says whether you're a student or a teacher or a parent, the trauma from the campfire is an ongoing daily challenge for everyone in the area. And the recovery is going to take time and patience. For NSPR News, I'm Michelle Wiley. This is After Paradise, answering your questions about post-campfire recovery. Coming up, we visit Gold Nugget Days and Talk Trees. More just ahead. You're listening to After Paradise. I'm Sarah Bohannon. Back in the gold rush era, a 54-pound gold nugget was found in a small community on the ridge. It was named after the town where it was found and is known as the Dogtown Nugget. At the time, the discovery made headlines across the nation, and the town of Paradise has been celebrating it for years. 
This annual event is known as Gold Nugget Days, but many wondered if it would happen this year due to the fire. The answer was yes. This weekend it was held and was the first major event in Paradise this year. NSPR's Nicole Camarda was there and has more from residents who traveled to be at the celebration. People came from all over to visit the ridge for the event. The day started off with the famous Donkey Derby. Three donkeys competed this year. They were released at Whiskey Flat, then raced to the finish line at the Sawmill Ball Field in Megalia. The donkeys have about 54 pounds of sand on their back. This amount of sand is meant to replicate the 54-pound gold nugget mined during the gold rush. As the donkeys ran down the dirt hill to the ball field, cheers rang out for the fan-favorite duo. This is now our four-time winner, Henry and Poppy. Henry Schleiger and his race partner Poppy the donkey have taken the first place spot for the last four years. Schleiger was grateful to be a part of this year's event. He said events like Gold Nugget Days are exactly what the community needs in order to come together. The more we see each other here, the more we'll want to be here, you know. Every time you come up here and you drive down an empty road, it's kind of foreboding, you know. You, there's no uh, draw, you know. But to come up here and see a bunch of people here in a big circle screaming at the same time for one purpose, that's what it's all about. And, um, you know, so the more we can get people out here to do those kind of things, faster this community will come back. After the Donkey Derby was finished, everyone headed to Skyway to watch the parade, which featured Miss Gold Nugget, Cal Fire, and many more. While many of the activities were the same this year, the meaning of the event was very different. This year especially, um, we are cobbling together what is left of our com community. Moving forward is a the theme for this year. Carol Stark, who works at the Gold Nugget Museum, said that this year, the Gold Nugget Days is both happy and sad. But she wants everyone to keep moving forward in mind. Those of us who are here and staying here are looking forward. We will remake our community in whatever manner, shape, or form it comes. It was especially different for those who have been coming for multiple years. Donkey Derby, Gold Nugget Days. Shell Morley of Paradise showed off her jean jacket that was covered in pins from previous years. As you can tell, I've been to quite a few donkey derbies. Morley agreed with Schleiger that holding Gold Nugget Days helped bring hope for the future for the town of Paradise. Events like this, coming together, I hear a lot of people telling their stories, first time they've been back. Some are just um, now coming up the hill to view their property before it's cleared off. So coming together with friends, telling their stories, lots of healing. I also spoke with Mary Shavy, a recent transplant to Megalia from the Bay Area, who said this was her first time at the Gold Nugget Days. She was most looking forward to watching the Donkey Derby. I'm going to get a donkey and, and, and try out next year. <laughs> Shavy said that she felt that it was extremely important for her to come this year and that she hopes the community coming together will encourage people to rebuild. You know, it's only events like this that everybody can get together and see people that they haven't seen for a long time that have been spread out and everything. So I think it's encouragement for the future. For NSPR News, I'm Nicole Camarda. Towering, shade-giving ponderosas were as emblematic of paradise as its Dogtown Nugget and Gold Rush origin, which is probably why so many of you have written in with questions about trees. We have answered specific questions about what to do if you have burned trees on your property and whether native species will be removed if they pose a hazard on our website. 
But today we look into a tree question many of you have asked, whether or not too many or too few are being cut down. And SPR's Mark Albert recently visited Paradise to find the answer. Standing just off of Pence Road in Upper Paradise, row upon row of charred tree trunks mark the landscape. In the distance, the furious whine of chainsaws seems almost ever-present. But there are some signs of life, like three young incense cedars seemingly untouched amidst the destruction. My guide for the day theorizes a grassy area lacking ladder fuels saved them. A retired wildland firefighter with 35 years on the line, Robin McCollum is also an arborist and former Butte County tree crew supervisor. As we drive around the area, McCollum spots some scorched oak trees out of the window of a Toyota 4Runner. He shares some facts about mortality. Oh, yeah, well, let's look at these oaks that are right here. The leaves got burned off, but oaks in particular will... It's, they're very different than the conifers. The oaks will go ahead and push buds out from underneath the bark later. On the other hand, with the conifers, if the needles get uh, scorched, if more than 50% of the crown gets scorched, it won't recover. He said it can take a full year to know if a conifer will survive and up to three years to determine if an oak will make it. Further up the ridge at Feather River Place, I draw McCollum's attention to a charred obelisk 35 feet high. No needles remain, but looking closer, you can see tiny sprouts breaking out from underneath the bark. If you peel off the char, the bark is brown, unburned beneath, which means that that bark served the, the function to insulate the cambium so that it didn't fail, and that's why it's able to come back. Cambium is the thin living layer beneath a tree's bark. In the fire's wake, fuel reduction and vegetation management have become buzzwords. There's a race to remove dead, dying, and hazardous trees by Caltrans, local authorities, property owners, and the utility whose equipment may have started the fire in the first place, Pacific Gas and Electric Company. Under guidelines introduced a year ago, utilities must have a dozen feet of clearance around power lines and nothing overhanging them. That's in addition to ones killed by the fire, PG&E spokesman Paul Moreno. During this survey, uh, about 91,000 trees were identified within the campfire that needed to be removed and cut down to make safe for the power lines. And to date, more than 60,000 trees have been, have been cut down. For those accustomed to Paradise's forested feel, its dappled light and relief from the valley's searing heat, the new Paradise could be difficult to recognize. Around us, markings have been made on the trees. Each agency has its own. With so many trees being removed so quickly, McCollum is concerned many are being taken unnecessarily. That's something I also heard from Mark Tony, director of the Utility Reform Network, Turn is a watchdog group that has criticized PG&E in the past. PG&E is not only trimming around the lines, you know, to give a, say, 12-foot radius. They are cutting trees 100 to 200 feet away from the lines because they claim they're afraid they're going to fall on them. That's something PG&E doesn't necessarily dispute, though spokesman Paul Moreno said there's more to it. If the tree isn't healthy. Yes. And if it's leaning in war, if it's just leaning in that direction. The fire is only part of it. Stressed by multi-year drought, many trees became susceptible to bark beetles, Marino said. 
Tony said Turn had received complaints after every recent fire that PG&E removed too many trees or ones that were perfectly healthy. But that can be hard to prove. PG&E's Paul Moreno. In a fire burn area, um, there were many trees that appeared healthy to the average person. But in fact, they've suffered enough damage that they will die within a year. The Sierra Club California is also concerned. Director Catherine Phillips said PG&E has been linked to several recent conflagrations and is eager to show the public that it's reacting quickly and on a large scale, even if the results may not be that effective. For the utilities, the easiest thing to do is to go in and clear-cut under transmission lines. PG&E planned to spend $200 million on controlling vegetation last year. According to the company, it pruned well over a million trees and cut down 160,000. It plans to more than double that second figure this year. As an investor-owned utility, PG&E is regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. Every time they get spanked by the PUC, then they go back and say, let's get more clearance. Well, that they, they don't gain much because it, the tree responds radically to being severely cut and it's got a nice big root system underneath there and even though it doesn't have much crown, it's going to put all of its sap and effort into growing back as many branches as it can because it's like, it's like their lungs and they, as far as the trees know, they've got to they've get those branches back up there and they will. And so there's cases that, that I've seen where trees have grown, branches, sprouts have grown 20 feet in one year. Even if that space is maintained, it's unclear how useful it would prove when winds grow fierce. Recently, PG&E began addressing another vulnerability. The company started using something called covered wire on major rebuild projects in recent years. It's less prone to say, you know, should a tree branch fall across the lines? you're not going to have the likelihood of sparking or shorting like you would with a bare conductor. I asked Moreno what was in place before the fire. The overhead high voltage lines there were all bare wire. Moreno said covered wire is a vast improvement. Covered lines are, are far more protected against outside interference than bare conductor. With bare conductor, you could have you know tree branch, mylar balloons, animals coming into contact with those and, and causing arcing or other problems. Aside from cutting trees down and covering wire so branches are less prone to sparking fire, Turns Mark Tony said PG&E should have a more multifaceted approach. They need to do some vegetation management, some covering of wires. They need to have better weather monitoring stations so they know what the conditions are. They need to have better cameras, better reporting. Other critics are calling for a more creative way to reduce the risk of lives lost to wildfire. Phillips of the Sierra Club said priorities should include direct help for creating defensible space and screening attic vents. I mean, you're going to find that, uh, especially in Paradise, as we saw, there were a lot of very elderly, low-income people who didn't have the physical strength to do that kind of work themselves and didn't have the financial means to do that kind of work themselves. PG&E recently announced that it enacted a new policy regarding the removal of trees felled by the utility within the fire zone. The company will now remove logs at no cost unless a property owner specifically requests otherwise. The company sped up its removal of felled trees in April. Mark Albert, North State Public Radio News. And that's our program for Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. After Paradise is produced by Mark Albert, Phil Wilkie, and Tess Figland. 
Adam Raguzia composed our theme music. Our engineer is Matt Fiddler. Next week, we will be airing a special one-hour show to commemorate the six-month anniversary of the campfire. We'll bring you the news you need to know and check in with people about how their lives have changed since November 8th and what life holds for them going forward. Please join us Thursday night at 6 p.m. for this special one-hour edition of After Paradise. That will also be the last episode of the show. Due to lack of resources, we will be discontinuing After Paradise next Thursday. That said, we will not stop reporting about campfire recovery and how this disaster has affected our community. We still want to hear from you, so please submit your questions at mynspr.org. Thank you so much for being with us these past months. We will be back with our last special episode next week. I'm Sarah Bohannon, and this is After Paradise from North State Public Radio. Thank you.